Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Why can't we all just get along? And conversely, why do we sometimes get along so well, building cathedrals, inventing democracy, symphonies, and stuff like that? According to my guest today, the answer is as old as life itself. In the behaviors of the most ancient forms of bacteria, single-celled organisms without a nucleus, we can see the seeds of civilization as we know it, for better and worse. They form collectives. They go to war. The key is homeostasis, the imperative of all life to avoid harm and seek to flourish. I'm delighted to be speaking today with neuroscientist and philosopher Antonio Damasio. He heads the Brain and Creativity Institute at the University of Southern California, and he is the author of Descartes' Error and many other books, including his newest, The Strange Order of Things, Life, Feeling, and the Making of Cultures. Welcome to Think Again. My pleasure to be here. I think Daniel Dennett once told me that Richard Feynman said that if you want to understand a complex scientific concept, even if you're a scientist, if you want to make sure you understand it, it's a good idea to either find an actual eight-year-old to explain it to or imagine that you're explaining it to an eight-year-old. I, I wonder, how would you explain the basic concept behind what you're trying to say in this book to, I don't know, a bright eight or nine-year-old? Well, um, I would start with life. I would start with the fact that uh, life is constantly manipulated by, first of all, a desire of continuation, a need for continuation, and because it has that mandate, that imperative right. of continuation, it's constantly, automatically evaluating what happens to an organism and around an organism as good or bad in, in the sense that it will help life continue or not. So I would tell your eight-year-old that, mm. okay, we have an organism, that organism is alive, and that organism is not alive just so. It's alive with a sort of internal command, an internal order that it must continue come hell or high water. And in order to do that, it must continually and automatically evaluate its state of life, its insides, and what is around in terms of whether or not it will help it continue. So the, 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 the two uh, critical factors here are that you have life, and that life is supposed to continue, and second, that in order for it to continue, it certainly helps that we are constantly evaluating what is happening inside and around as conducive or not conducive to the continuation. There are better words than conducive to use for an eight-year-old, but <laughs> flourishing or well, but that's not better for an eight-year-old either. <laughs> okay, that, that's right. <laughs> so uh, th th that's the idea, and and this is you know the the Jason the, the the beauty of this is that it's present in all living organisms. It doesn't make any difference whether it is a bacterium, which is a, a single cell with no nucleus and, of course, no nervous system, and I would bet no mind, 
uh, no consciousness, no nothing of the things that we indulge in and like to have. And it can happen in a creature like you or me. Of course, very complex creatures that are multicellular um, with many, many complex systems and that have nervous systems. They are capable of mind, capable of consciousness, capable of very complex operations in the universe. Yeah, and so the idea of homeostasis, I mean, this was somewhat new to me. I guess every educated person knows that life wants to continue itself, but somehow we tend to think of this homeostatic imperative in terms of maintenance. And then we think of continuation in terms of reproduction. But you were very specific about the fact that it's really about flourishing. It's about gaining a surplus of energy, gaining a surplus of whatever benefits the living thing. Precisely. You, you, you got the, the, the main idea. One of the problems with the, the, the concept of homeostasis, which is something that really appears scientifically in the 19th century uh, in France with Claude Bernard, although it was not called homeostasis at that point yet. Homeostasis is a term that comes from the 20th century. And by the way, it, it, the premonition of what became homeostasis uh, in the writings of Claude Bernard, a French physiologist, or of uh, a Canon, uh, an American physiologist, the premonition of all that was in Spinoza. Spinoza talked about, talked about the conatus, which is this force that obliges you and wants you to stay alive, which is a very beautiful description, and it, and it still holds. That's the essence of it. But one thing that is very critical and that you clearly picked up uh, on my writing is that quite often people think of homeostasis as balance. And the word itself is a poor word because it has this uh, root of stasis and it sort of conjures up uh, an idea of stability and equilibrium. And of course, as I explain in the book, equilibrium is death when you think about the, the thermodynamics. Right. Uh, you don't want equilibrium. What you want is a state which pushes you forward and which does what I like to call poetically flourishing, but which is really, as you also say, said, uh, a positive energy balance. So at any moment, what a living organism wants to do, quote unquote, because it may not want to do anything uh, in <laughs> the proper sense, is to get enough energy into the system that it allows you to maintain itself now, but it allows you to have energy for the next hour, for the next day. That's the beauty of it. So, in fact, a term like homeodynamics would be a better term, but people have tried to change the term and everybody still goes back to homeostasis. So I think we're stuck with it. <laughs> we just have to make sure that we, we understand what we mean. But it is very, very beautiful. And it's very beautiful to think that this pervades all of living organisms, simple and complex. And it's there. And you know, something that is also very interesting, it's almost as if you could see this as a, 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 well, it definitely is a non-conscious process as far as creatures like ourselves uh, um, are concerned. And it is a process that is there giving you what I like to call desire. I would say that, that our conscious sense of desire for life, for love, for eating, for having sex, whatever, 
is in fact an expression of this uh, force that pushes us forward, uh, whether we want it or not, provided, and this is a very important provided, provided we're healthy. Because when we are not healthy, what is really being disrupted is homeostasis. So in all sorts of situations in which you are ill, what happens is that you disrupt homeostasis. And instead of it being conducive to life and to continuation in stronger or weaker forms, uh, it suddenly becomes misdirected and it can lead into illness and into death. It can lead, for example, right. to stress, illness, and death. And that's, of course, what we express in the form of feeling as malaise as opposed to joy and flourishing. But the beauty is that life in creatures that have nervous systems, including, of course, humans, is represented as feeling. So feelings are mm -hmm. the ambassadors of the living process, are the, the, the deputies, if you want. And they're constantly telling us in terms of mental experience, which really means conscious experience, whether the organism is doing okay or not doing okay. And if when, when we are okay, we talk about well-being or we say somebody asks us, how are you? And we say, fine, you know. That simply means that homeostasis is doing well enough that it has not sent a bulletin to the brain and the mind telling it, watch out, there's trouble here. And when you are sick and you say, I'm coming down with something, uh, I'm not well, it's actually, it's your organism uh, sensing disrupted homeostasis and telling your brain, telling your mind that something is wrong and you better do something about it. Now, th this is, of course, very beautiful in more ways than one because it tells you that throughout most of evolution, um, beginning with uh, 3.9 billion years ago and coming for billions of years, organisms right. did not have any conscious access to how life was going. So it had to be all automatically regulated. Uh, there was no mental um, component to this. Right. But in creatures that have nervous systems and that can portray, quote unquote, feelings in mental terms, there is this novel possibility of knowing what is going on and the even more novel possibility of doing something about it. I want to interrupt here and ask Please. you about this this concept of images in in your book. You talk about you talk about how central nervous systems enable organisms to make images of both the internal and and the external world, I guess, via the portals of eyes, ears, nose, etc. But I think that when you talk about images, you're talking about, you know, we immediately picture a visual image, but you're talking about it's, something I'm talking about different. More than that. What, what okay, is, so uh, images is, a, is a, a broader concept, and you're quite right. Uh, it immediately conjures up vision, but it's not vision alone. So we have auditory images, we have tactile images, uh, and we're constantly, if we are imaging, it simply means that we are making maps 
of the sensory signals that are going through a certain channel. So you're making, for example, auditory images of my voice uh, and right. of the sounds that I'm producing. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm looking at you on the screen and I'm making visual images of you. What does that mean? It means that I am mapping a variety of aspects uh, of you and that I am generating configurations that resemble you and i think that right. uh, you know i use the word resemblative in the in in the book because it, it's exactly what it is we're sort of creating a picture mirror of something else and it resembles that something else and this is the for me the great entry into the world of mind uh, i don't think bacteria can have minds in the proper sense because they don't have the capacity to create a map of anything you do think that ants maybe have minds yes because they do have nervous systems simple as they are the key here and and this is a strong claim and somebody might say well you will have to prove that and i will do my best but <laughs> i am making the claim that it takes nervous systems to make maps it's not such a horrendous claim it, it's per perfectly reasonable and it takes in fact complex nervous systems to create the complexity of images that we have today and that allow us to not only look at the, the general configuration of, say, a, a head and a face like I'm looking at with you, but also um, have fine, small configurations. For example, right now, you're making auditory maps of my phonemes and of the way those phonemes are introduced in a certain sequence and of the pauses that I make between them, mm -hmm. which allow you to parse my words. Uh, this is pretty hard stuff. And uh, no ants are not going to do it with their simple nervous systems and bacteria forget it. <laughs> okay, so life in its origins is, I mean, I want, I want to use words like ambitious, Mm -hmm. Selfish, <laughs> I want to say, selfish unless it's beneficial to that organism to cooperate with other organisms. Then we then we arrive at humanity. We arrive at consciousness. So culture is still motivated to a great extent by these homeostatic urges, but yeah. it becomes a a different thing somehow. Maybe we can talk a bit about that. Yeah. So I, I, I like your term ambitious. I don't think I use that term, but I think it's a pretty good one because the, the, there is ambition goes with desire. It, it has the same power and the same direction. Uh, it's this force that makes you want to something. Right. And, and that is blind in the case of bacteria and is not blind in our case most of the time. But I also like your emphasis on self, on, on something that has to do with the organism that is having the ambition and the desire, because that's the only way in which it makes sense from the get-go. It has to be first about self-interest, quote-unquote. Right. What is interesting is that Nature has managed very well, or managed, you know, up to a certain point well, th this idea that if you only would have s creatures that are self-interested, of course you would not get anywhere in terms of building any kind of more complex organization. So even at the level of bacteria, they have a self-interest, but it is in the end 
in their self-interest to also cooperate when the, the, the situation so requires or to have a conflict and try to destroy others. So right. from very early on in the process of life, we have the, these automatic means of organizing cooperations or conflicts in order to manage not just one organism with its self-interest, but a group of organisms that then have a self-interest that represents the group, but in the best of all possible worlds, that self-interest reflects positively in the self-interest of some of the components in the group, at least. So it's individuals and it's and it's tribes, yeah. um, but it doesn't necessarily, does it ever happen at the level of species or is that group self-interest, is it always at the individual family or kind of, I don't know, what you might call national yeah. level? Um, excellent question that has a lot of implications, especially at the high yeah. level of culture. Um, so I, I would like to go first to the prolongation of these thoughts in terms of the culture, and then we'll get to your point about uh, sure. where, where's the limit. Uh, I, I, can, I can just say at the outset that I think that the self-interest is very easily extended to the family and to the tribe and to the village and to the nation. Uh, it's more difficult to push it beyond those borders. And that's actually something that has always been part of the history of cultures and humanity, is that beyond a certain point, it really requires a monumental effort of education and of civilization to achieve that extension. So the expansion of the circle of my interests. Uh, I'm very uh, happily interested in you because we, we have a, we have a communion, communion of interests right now. Um, right. But uh, under certain circumstances, I might not. Uh, <laughs> sure. and, and so <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, extremely, it's extremely fragile and it requires certainly a strong cultural and civilizational force in order to extend the circle to the whole universe, okay? Right. Now, back to the, your question on cultures. I think that one of the novelties, and uh, it's a novelty that could get me into trouble, although so far in numerous reviews that I have received uh, in different parts of the world and here in the States, it has not. And on the contrary, people have appreciated the idea. Is this idea that the, the homeostasis and its expression in feeling serve as the motivators of cultural processes? And right. it's an idea that it is, is so simple and so, to me, obvious that one can say, I, I mean, who could doubt that? But the fact is that it's not a question of doubt. It's a question of people not expressing it. People, whenever they're asked, so what is the motor of cultures? What was the motor to create moral systems and to create uh, governance and to create uh, technology and science or the arts? And people, right. people always go, and you know, I, I actually had this exercise for a while. I kept asking colleagues and friends that question. So what made this happen? And the invariable answer is, oh, look, clearly animals don't have those 
instruments and practices because they're not smart enough, because they don't have language, and it really fell to us humans with our enormous complexity of mind, uh, with all the shades of intellect that we have, and even the fact that we have language to translate all of our thoughts, that was what right. gave us the cultures. And I think, obviously, you had to have intellect and you had to have language in order for it to, to work the way it does, but you had to have a reason to do it. Why on earth would you bother to invent all the things that we invented? Well, we bothered because we were either suffering uh, or having pain, or because we were smart enough to envision pleasure that we did not have at the moment, but that it would be good if we would. So it's the presence of those silent partners, right. pain, suffering, prospect of pleasure, those are the motors. And the other thing that is interesting is that they are not only the motors of cultures, they, they push us into the practices and into the instruments, but they also monitor the success or failure of the inventions. So if you invent a medication to treat my pain uh, and I take it, but I don't get better, what happens is that I'm going to say that you're not a very good, uh, you're not a very good doctor, mm -hmm. and you're going to throw away that medication and think of giving me another. So that is a monitoring and a calibration that is also in the hands of feelings. So once again, feelings serve to motivate, but then they stay on to arbiter. And to, to decide and critique, critique, in a sense, critique yeah. culture. And, yeah, exactly. And it's very interesting because when you think ab about cultural selection, the the one of the main agents of cultural selection is feeling. You're going to reject right. inventions that don't do you any good, and you're going to adopt things that are really very good. Think about all the things we're going through right now in terms of recent instruments of our culture that have to do with digital media. We're going through right. an operation of analysis with a tremendous amount of emotional and feeling reaction to what is happening, good and bad. Which will no doubt revise the way that we use these tools exactly. and what we do with them, social media, the internet, etc. Exactly. Um, where this gets really interesting for me is with the example of music, which you talk about a, a little bit in the book. And, and I know we're sort of on murky ground here because it's, dif it's difficult to analyze exactly what the homeostatic origins of music are. But you point out that we've been making flutes for, what is it, 40,000, 50,000 years, at something least, like that? At least. Yeah. yeah. And what you say in the book the sound of an instrument is serving some kind of homeostatic need in the sense of reminding us of something that benefits us, right? Of By analogy, in a sense? Th that's certainly a part of it. But there's one that is even more intense and intrinsic, uh, which is that the sound properties itself, for example, timbers, have certain emotive capabilities, and they can make you irritated and rouse you to action, which is something you can imagine people doing in early tribal life when you had to be organized to go to war, for example, and to fight right. another tribe. Well, think of drumming 
and how it would create a tempo for a march against an enemy. And think of also of how certain sounds would, would grate and would, would make you irritated and ready to pounce. And is this, an, is this by analogy? Is this because it causes us to, you know, causes our nervous system to vibrate in a, a way that is somehow reminiscent of the way that the nervous system would respond to anxiety or, or something? It's very interesting. It goes even deeper than that. But let me just say the opposite, just to make okay. sure uh, our, our listeners uh, hear something good, not just drumming, <laughs> drumming in war. Think of what either a flute, uh, which is obviously a very early instrument, and, and is an instrument that resembles voice very much, or the human voice, how they could be used to soothe someone right. because of the sound it produces, to console someone, because you have to imagine that 40,000 years ago, there were people that were grieving under certain circumstances because they had a broken bone or because they had just lost a loved one. And someone would have discovered that by speaking in a certain voice, by using a certain intonation, you made right. the other person better. And you, you don't have to be very inventive about this because you think of the sounds that babies produce, the cooing of a baby or the motherese that the mother uses to soothe the baby uh, and right. prolong vowels, which, by the way, are the beginning of singing. You know, you don't, mm. you don't say baby. You say baby. <laughs> right, and what right. you're doing is producing tones. You're on the way to producing a song. And one day it will be a lullaby. And by the way, you could use music, again, flutes and voice, which is the primary, the very first instrument that we, we had. Uh, we could use them for something that we all are very interested in, which is called seduction. By the way, uh, Mozart knew about that uh, when, he <laughs> talked, when he talked about the magic flute and when we talked about all of this constant seduction that is going on in his operas. So uh, we had at least these three cultural effects that you can generate, seduction, consolation, organization for conflict and war. These are aspects of music that are still used today. They're still governments that will have marches to make people be bellicose against an enemy. And we are still using songs and music production to console and to seduce. Now, the interesting yeah. thing, getting back to your very clever question, is about why, this, why does it work this way? And one interesting possibility is that in the natural world, we already have sounds that come from certain objects that have certain characteristics that lead to frightening us or to making us happy. Think about the sounds of the wind that is blowing um, gently, or think of the sounds of a lightning storm, or think of the sound of an earthquake. There were a few as, you know, humanity was coming up. Or think, and here, not just in the realm of music, but in the realm of other arts, think of how a certain color or a certain shape can be associated with a source of goodness, like, for example, a beautiful fruit. 
that will right. be, say, an orange or, or some other fruit that has is associated with something that is good for you, that will give you a good taste, that will be nourishing. And guess what? There's this color that is so good. Whereas black will be associated with the night, which was obviously a problem in the early phases <laughs> right. of uh, humanity uh, and will be associated with uh, a variety of circumstances that are less than, than nice. So you have a sort of right. building, a gradual buildup of associations of certain traits of an object with the whole object. And those traits could be visual or auditory. And it feels like uh, it feels like at the level of of human culture, though, these things evolve to a point, and they dialogue with each other. Cult, you know, cu cultural artifacts, Absolutely. cultural innovations, talk to others to a point where it seems abstracted so far beyond these original homeostatic urges that that it's almost hard to parse. Exactly. You know? So it's it's very easy for us. I, I insist when I talk about homeostasis and cultures that it has to do mainly with origins so that people don't get very upset and say, oh, so this, <laughs> this guy wants to explain uh, in terms of homeostasis how you get to have a cathedral uh, in the uh, 12th century or uh, Frank Gehry's uh, Walt Disney Hall. So uh, that's not what I'm trying to do. What I, uh, there's no way we're going to explain those fine uh, speciations that we get uh, right. today and have been getting for a long time uh, on the basis of homeostasis alone. But the origin is homeostatic. And it's very easy, as you were saying, now that we are so far away, to forget where it all began or where it all may have begun, if we want to be a little bit more modest. But I think that <laughs> the... Part of the beauty of the idea is that if you think of cultures as being motivated by feeling, which was motivated by homeostasis, as in fact generates homeostasis, then you see cultures as a sort of natural continuation of the life process, not something right. divorced from the life process. And actually, one of the main goals of the strange order of things is to call attention to this beautiful natural process that runs from very simple organisms to very complex ones like us and to the projection of those complex organisms in a large society, a culture, a civilization. And I think this, in a way, makes us more human. It enriches our humanity by pushing it both downward towards sim simple creatures, mindless that they may be, and mm -hmm. upward in terms of the cultures. You're interested in continuity and this kind of integration in more than one way. You also spend a fair amount of time in the book on the kind of mind-body mm -hmm. duality and, yeah. the, and the fact that we tend to think of the brain and the nervous system as somehow a completely separate thing from the body, but that in fact, there's a constant dialogue going on. So, I mean, you seem to be after a, a, an integrative process on multiple levels here. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you, that you seized on that idea, which I think is one of the most important in the book. Uh, and I, I hope that it, it will, you know, as you were suggesting, I insist on it more than once because it is so 
against the, the grain of today. Most people, again, you ask them on the street, where do you think your mind is being produced? And everybody will say, well, the brain. Uh, and then you can insist further and say, so how is it made? What makes the mind? Well, it's the nervous system in all its operations. And if you get the, if the nervous system gets sick or you take away the nervous system or you kill the nervous system, then you don't have a mind. Well, right. that actually is true, but it doesn't follow that it's the nervous system alone that is making mind. The nervous system is making it in very complex cooperation with non-nervous elements in our bodies. And there right. again, the idea that bacteria and many other simple organisms can have such complex behaviors is serving notice that it was not necessary to have a nervous system in order to get to complex forms of behavior. That's a very mm. important part of the, the book's message. And that's why I call right. it the strange order of things, because most people will say, when asked, where does this business of cooperation and conflict come from? Most people actually think it comes out of human behavior, although it's, there's plenty of evidence that that's not true, but not many people will say, well, you can find it even in, in small little creatures that you cannot see without a microscope. Uh, and that's because only recently, through a lot of the work of microbiologists, have we been able to see the huge complexity of those lives. But those lives are capable of very great complexity of social organization and of making choices and reorganizing without having any nervous system at all. So we have to change our tune and to say we make minds out of cooperations between classically body and brain. Uh, and this, right. of course, has a huge importance in the way we look at life in, in general. Uh, and it also uh, gets you out of certain problems that you that you will have in relation to, for example, consciousness, which is something that people are constantly confronting and realizing that with the nervous system alone, they cannot solve it. And then they talk about the heart problem and the impossible problem <laughs> and all of that. When you open up possibilities uh, and you make it easier, if you reconceive of the circumstances in which you generate minds. Both easier and, and more complicated in some ways, because it seems like we've isolated the brain recently. There's been so much focus on, you know, neuroscience yeah. has advanced greatly, cognitive science. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis on the brain, but once you re-anchor the brain and, and the mind and consciousness in the body, you also make things more complex in some ways because there's very much that we, very, very much we don't understand, like about gut, gut bacteria right, and other exactly. interactions that are going yeah, on. We, yeah, we've had a, a, a very glorious period, which it's good that we had, uh, <laughs> in which we, we learned so much about the nervous system and there's still far more that we need to learn. But it's also interesting that now we have this new connection with the body. And you, you just referred, uh, for example, to say 
bacteria in the gut, uh, which we tended to think of as enemies, you know, bad things that would kill us. But in fact, in the majority of cases, they're doing good things for us. You know, there are only a few that are bad actors, and uh, <laughs> but the, the, the others are actually doing things that are absolutely indispensable for us to go on with our lives. I think it's important to point out that the fact that you are anchoring the origins of culture in the pre-human homeostatic imperative does not mean that you are saying, it's not a moral argument. You're not arguing that humanity is motivated by homeostatic urges and that therefore that is, that is all we should do. Absolutely. You're quite right. No, you know, ethics, you know, moral systems are things that we develop, a lot of intellectual capacity that requires analysis and judgment of circumstances. And, uh, you know, homeostasis did not invent uh, uh, um, ethical rules. We made the rules, but we made the rules using a lot of information that does have a natural beginning. Where else would, would we find it? So th there, there's, a, there's a natural aspect, but then there's a construction of this complex edifice of uh, whatever you want to call it, morality, uh, ethics, and so forth, that comes out of our intellectual ability, of our analysis of situations, of our ability to d differentiate different kinds of responses to different, uh, sometimes only slightly different circumstances. So that, that's uh, in no way am I reducing morality or any other aspect of culture to the plain biology. What I definitely don't want to say is that there's any of this in our glorious cultures that can exist without having the source in our biological reality. And, and, right. and, so I, I'm, and one thing that I like to insist on is that this is not at all a reductive argument in any, in any way. I'm not saying that biology is the, 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 the full explanation of cultures. Of course not. We have differentiated our cultural life so much that there are lots of things that explain uh, certain cultural directions or phenomena that would be completely stupidly explained by plain <laughs> biological phenomena, although they are there at the root because everything is connected to everything else. It's just a question of the weight that is put on it. The other thing, and this I think may be important for your listeners, uh, sometimes people will say things like, well, since you're putting us in line, in the line of bacteria, you're really bringing down the special nature of humanity, which is right. absolutely the opposite of what I think. I think that we humans are very special. Uh, we may not be as special as sometimes people would like to be, but we are very special and quite distinguishable from any other uh, species because of a variety of characteristics of our behavior, except that we're not going to do it on the basis of homeostasis or even on the basis of plain feelings because lots of other creatures have those possibilities. I think our special nature comes from the fact that we, among all other creatures, when we suffer uh, or when we have joy, 
we place that suffering or that joy in a perspective that is immensely rich and that comes out of the sheer knowledge that we have constructed of our past and of the future that we anticipate, which are things right. that, quite frankly, even if we may, you may love your dog very much, but you're not expecting your dog to be having pain and thinking, I wonder if I'm going to be still in pain at Christmas. Uh, your, mm -hmm. dog, your dog is not going to do that, whereas we can do that. Whatever happens to us, good or bad, we can immediately place in a perspective of what we have lived to date and what we have imagined that we want to live in the future, which is part of what I like to call memories of the future. Because we're constantly predicting and anticipating what is going to happen. You know, I'm anticipating what I'm going to, after I finish this, I have to go to lunch very quickly and I have a lot of things <laughs> that I have to do in the afternoon. I'm thinking about that too. And I'm thinking about what I want to do in the weekend. And, <laughs> and if something were to happen to me now, those plans, those anticipations and predictions, as well as my past, would be there uh, to serve as the case in which I was planting my feeling of the moment. And this is something that is strictly human, at least in my judgment at this point. There's no danger, there's no diminution of uh, the, the, the human value by being very honest about the fact that we do descend from these creatures that once had only one cell and no nervous system, which simply have to confront that reality. Well, in fact, arguably, whatever project we might want to attempt in terms of a better government, a better future, a better use of technology, et cetera, et cetera, can only be served, I would think, by a better understanding of these basic imperatives that, that drive and have shaped our culture. I, I entirely agree. On that note, and in the interest of the anticipated lunch, let us move <laughs> to the second part of the show. And I think what we'll do is we'll watch one surprise clip from our, from our producers. This is Maya Salovich. She's a neuroscience journalist talking about addiction. Um, addiction is compulsive behavior despite negative consequences. And it's really important to start by defining addiction because for a long time we really defined it very poorly. Uh, we used to think that addiction was needing a substance to function. And what that resulted in was that cocaine was not addictive because cocaine does not produce physical withdrawal that is noticeable. Um, you may be cranky and um, irritable and crave cocaine, but you won't be puking and shaking and have the classic symptoms that you would see with alcohol or heroin withdrawal. So cocaine wasn't addictive. Then crack came. And we realized that defining addiction in that way not only harms uh, people by telling them that cocaine is not addictive, it also harms pain patients because people who take opioids daily for pain will develop physical dependence, but they are not addicted unless they have compulsive behavior despite negative consequences. To me, non-drug addictions are really, really interesting because some people have argued that drugs are addictive because they change the brain 
and that addiction results from a unique pathology related to the particular chemicals of the drugs. It is certainly the case that the chemistry matters, but addiction can occur completely without any external chemicals. And the reason that that happens is that addiction is not simply exposure to a substance. Addiction is a pattern of behavior and certain patterns of experience are inherently addictive. And um, gambling is a good example of this because what gambling does is it gives you intermittent reinforcement. And so, you know, every unpredictable amount of times you win. And this is a puzzle to our pattern-seeking brains. And we keep thinking we're going to find a pattern and it's going to sort out and we're going to understand it and we're going to get rich. Um, you know, or we find that sort of the constant immersion in these ideas of, you know, that allow you to escape, well, I got to do this and I got to, you know, um, is going to, um, you know, soothe you and allow you to escape from your life and stuff like this. Um, I mean, I think, it, I think gambling is also really interesting because we've had an enormous explosion in the availability of gambling. Um, but we have not had enormous explosion of gambling addictions. And again, this is because the population rate, there's only a certain percent of people who will be vulnerable. Um, now, you can make more of those people by traumatizing them and taking away their economic um, <laughs> you know, ways of living. Um, but you can't create them by providing more substances or more addictive opportunities. What my, I think the most important comment here is that not only does this have to do with very complex forms of behavior, but it's, uh, we need to understand that chemistry is always involved because even if you're not being given a drug, uh, when you are behaving in a certain way, when you are, for example, trying to, uh, you know, when you're gambling and you lose and you don't want to stop and you want to continue, you are being, quote unquote, pushed in that direction by the presence of certain drugs, quote unquote, that are being manufactured by the brain. So all of it is chemistry. The one thing that people very often forget is that uh, one of the main kinds of drug that uh, causes addiction has to do with opioids. Well, opioids exist in the brain and exist in the body, exist throughout the organism. And they're opioids that cause distress and they're opioids that cause stress and uh, uh, they're opioids that alleviate stress. In fact, the possibility of alleviating stress and reducing pain or eliminating pain is uh, fundamental. And the reason why we know that there are opioids around in the world is because it was discovered that they would eliminate pain. Right. Uh, and there was th this analgesic effect that is very powerful. And for a long time, people didn't know that there was the equivalent in sight. So it's not that we have molecules that are similar to the opioids outside coming from uh, um, little plants. It's the other way around. <laughs> is that there are things around that mimic the effect and the chemical conformation of certain molecules that we fabricate all the time, and they're called the endogenous opioids. And they're participating in our 
constant um, day to day. And there are chemicals like dopamine that will uh, create urges for us to behave in a certain way. So there's plenty of chemistry inside and some chemistry available from the outside, but it does have to do with homeostasis right. in the sense that I was gonna if, go you are, if you are gambling and you don't succeed, uh, you're going to be very frustrated and that's going to disrupt your homeostasis. The fr what we describe as frustration is a disruption that is obviously uh, occurs at a psychological and social level, uh, but then it disturbs uh, the way your life is going and it will have consequences down the line for your life. And you can see that in humans and you can see that in animal experiments as well. The, the homeostatic urge there is very kind of stupid and short-sighted in a sense. Like it, yes. It, it, yeah. <laughs> it, it's willing, well, willing to, uh, to risk our long-term harm for, for some short-term perceived benefit. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking without uh, uh, much effort, uh, th there was a dinner party that I was at yesterday, and I had this absolutely amazing chocolate cake for the dessert. And uh, the conversation was very nice. Everybody around the table was saying lots of interesting things. And I noticed that my partner to the right, this lovely lady who is very beautiful and wants to continue being beautiful, did not eat her cake. <laughs> and the conversation continued. And at a certain point, I picked up my fork and I said, are you going to eat your cake? And she said, no. And I said, do you mind? And I started <laughs> eating your cake. And my wife across the table said, are you going to be sick? And I said, no, I'm not going to be sick. Then I continued eating the cake of this lady. And did I need to eat the cake? No, it is a perfect, perfectly <laughs> stupid thing to do. But it was very pleasurable at the moment. And probably I gained half a kilo. Uh, and and that's, uh, it certainly did not do. It did good things for my homeostasis for about half an hour. Uh, and then I will have to pay for it. Well, and and maybe maybe your ancient ancestors would have benefited from the the you know in a cold climate somewhere or a climate where food was scarce from the extra fat that the sugar might create on your body. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know. They, they, they say, you know. It's not. Some people will say, "Well, it's stupid to become obese." He said, "Well, yeah, but <laughs> long ago uh, and far away, it, it was actually a helpful thing. It was nice to have a, a little bit of reserves in your in your belly." Um, I can see the the other clip. Oh, the other clip. You have time. Oh, great. If you want. So okay. So we're gonna watch. This is Max Tegmark and. He's a physicist and cosmologist, and here he's talking about consciousness. When a colleague tells me that they think consciousness is BS, I challenge them to tell me what is wrong with rape and torture, and to explain that to me without using the word consciousness or the word experience. Because if they can't talk about that, it's just that the whole thing that they are saying is so bad is just a bunch of electrons and quarks moving around in some particular way rather than some other particular way. And what's so bad about that? I feel the only way we can actually have any logical scientific foundation of ethics, morality, purpose, and meaning is precisely in terms of experience, in terms of consciousness. And this makes it really important. 
as we prepare for our future to understand what this is. And I, for one, think that this is actually something that we can also ultimately understand scientifically. I don't think that the difference between a living bug and a dead bug is that the living bug has some sort of secret life sauce in it. I think of the bugs as mechanisms and the dead bug is just a broken mechanism. Similarly, I think that what makes my brain conscious, but the food I ate, which got rearranged into my brain, not, wasn't conscious, isn't because they're made of different kind of stuff. It's the same quarks rearranged, right? It's the pattern into which they're arranged. And I think it's a scientific question. What properties does this pattern of information processing have to have for there to be a subjective experience there? I, I think that the, 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 the gist of what he's saying, with which, of course, I would, I would agree, is that it doesn't make much sense to talk, for example, give the example of ethics, uh, without talking about the fact that we have minds and that we are able to experience those minds. What I like the most in the in the segment is the emphasis on experience, right? Because very often consciousness or mind is talked about without reference to the fact that what is really critical is that we have a perspective, which is the subjective perspective on what is occurring in our mind. Uh, one way in which this is important and getting back to the strange order of things, uh, you, I'm sure you noticed my insistence to the point of boredom <laughs> on the difference be between emotion and feeling. Well, emotions are actions, are uh, action repertoires that are public, anybody can see, you know, I can, I can have a face of joy and everybody will know that I'm in that, in that state of joy or I'm a good actor. Right. And I can be very sad and likewise that will be known or I can be infuriated and that will be seen in my posture and in my face and so forth. But if I am feeling sad or if I am feeling happy, or if I am feeling infuriated, that will be known to me alone. The experience is mine, is private, is not public at all. There's no Facebook uh, <laughs> or Cambridge Analytica that can get into me, okay? Th that I know for, for the moment, <laughs> could change. Uh, but right now, I think we're safe in our experience. So that's why this is so important. And the most important and beautiful aspect of consciousness is in fact that there is experience and there is someone, quote unquote, that has the experience and that someone is the subject or if you want the self. And that's why we talk about this beautiful property called subjectivity. And you talk a bit about um, artificial intelligence uh, in the later part of the book. And about how most of what we've achieved thus far, computers that can beat grandmasters at chess or the world champion of Go, you know, is predicated on a model of intelligence that has nothing to do with feeling. Correct. But that it will be extremely difficult for us to achieve artificial general intelligence that, that really mimics or captures what, what goes on for humans. Absolutely, absolutely. People have had so much difficulty absorbing this fundamental distinction between emotion and feeling that I can see why they fail to understand the, the, the fundamental distinction that you've just articulated. But unless you have life in 
the organism, and unless you have a life, which really means a, a state of immense vulnerability, a state that needs to be regulated by an Herculean effort, unless you have that, you're not going to have feelings because feelings express that in a subjective way. And if you don't have life and feelings to talk about the internal mind of a, a, a robot, for example, is mm -hmm. absurd. It just doesn't make any sense. Although I don't have any problem with the possibility of enriching the repertoire of emotive behaviors that they have. And I don't even deny that it is possible to mimic lots of things and to create much greater complexity in organisms. We just need to to give Caesar what belongs to Caesar and God <laughs> what belongs to God. I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's, it seems like it might be possible to create machines at some point that have something analogous to the experience of feelings from which they then can learn whether or not you can replicate the complexity of yeah. the way that f feelings are built up in humans. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, yeah. It's, a, it's very silly to say never <laughs> right. and to uh, underestimate the uh, inventiveness and the intelligence of the people that are dealing with these problems. It's just that it's important to know that right now you cannot do it. And right now, uh, when people tell me that, oh, we have robots that have perfect emotions, and I say, no, they don't. They, they, the emotions have been planted there by nice devices. And I also say in Strange Order of Things that I've never met a robot that I didn't like and <laughs> I've never met a robot that didn't, didn't like me, uh, except that uh, I, I didn't really and it didn't really. <laughs> I, I wonder if you want to, if we want to maybe leave this on something around what you were saying in the, I believe it's the second to last chapter in the book, or maybe it's the last chapter about the state of things now and where we might want to head. I mean, it, it comes off initially, on the one hand, you reject the pessimism of some thinkers about the future who mm -hmm. reduce human beings to kind of, I don't know, extraneous slaves of technology at some point. On the other hand, you don't seem particularly hopeful about whether we're going to overcome the harm that comes from some of our basic homeostatic urges as a yeah. species and live together yeah. well. Yeah, and I think that the uh, being in that undecided position is actually the, the most true I can be. On the one hand, you know, it's interesting because I'm fundamentally a very optimistic person. And whenever I'm talking to young people who are optimistic, I make an effort, even if I'm not particularly mm -hmm. cheerful about mm -hmm. the day, I make an effort to be cheerful because I think it's incredibly cruel to be talking to somebody who is, for example, 22 years old and be talking about the bad things of the world. Well, you know, I was once 22 years old and I had my life. <laughs> so why should I, without, should, should I be blotting the pleasure <laughs> of somebody's, somebody else's life? Uh, but at the same time, and I think that when you look at what has happened to us in the world of science and technology, and even in the world of the humanities, uh, they're absolutely spectacular things to be enjoyed and to be looked at in a very optimistic way. At the same time, I think it's a mistake 
to be only optimistic and to reject pessimism because, in fact, if you look at the, you know, I, I know you can criticize headlines for being over-pessimistic, but there are plenty of things to be worried about in our world at many levels. It's not just basic politics. Uh, it's basic politics for sure. And it's the, the, the state of clash of civilizations uh, that is so blatant and that has been so enhanced by digital media that I think that to ignore the perils of that clash, to ignore the perils of not having time to reflect on what is happening because we're so accelerated by the devices with which we're getting news, and the possibility of even the democratic process being completely excavated from within and not being reasonable, not, not being realizable. I think these are all reasons for concern. And if we are a little bit concerned, I think we'll get a better chance of staving off the dangers and then have a, a better chance of really being optimistic. Concern in that case is the feeling that critiques culture. Exactly. <laughs> Having a sense that it, this is not just, we're not just living in a marvelous Pollyanna world. We're living in a world that is actually very beautiful and full of riches, uh, at least for some of us, but also has a lot of dangers. And, and I, I don't think that's unfair. I think it's, to me, is, I think is the, 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 the right position. But I'm full of hope. My, in, in all, I'm full of hope for my lunch and for your lunch. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's been great talking to you. It's been great talking to you, Antonio Damasio. Thank you so much for being on Think Again and enjoy your lunch. I'll correct my homeostasis rapidly. Dr. Damasio's new book is The Strange Order of Things, Life, Feeling, and the Making of Cultures. And that's all we got for you this week. You know, the body, the brain, the entire nervous system, uh, subtle chemical interactions, the history of all life on Earth and all human culture. And we'll be back next week with something not entirely different, but going in a slightly different direction. Michael Gazzaniga, the neuroscientist who is famous for his studies of left and right brain specialization, talking in more depth about the nature of consciousness. Hope to see you then.